Every ministry is important in the church, but none more important than the ministry to our children. Can you agree with that? I want to thank God for Sister Christy, Brother Michael, Chip, Shelley, all the people who work with our children and, uh, and, and the work that they do. And so, so praise God for that. And I want to thank Brother Matt and the, and the, and the choir for the, for, the, for the music this morning. Uh, that King of Kings song, we could have just about packed up and left after that. Man, that was just a special, special anointing in that song. And so maybe, maybe we'll do that at, at, at the end of service. Matthew 1 and 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. If you have your Bible or your smartphone or whatever it is that you get the word, if you want to turn to the Gospel of John, and we'll be reading from that momentarily. After the Apollo 15 mission, Colonel James Irwin related some of the high points of his experience. He told of weightless bodies floating free in a space capsule, the rising crescent of the earth as seen from the moon, and the triumphal splashdown before a watching world. Irwin also spoke of the impact the experience had on his spiritual life. He said that from the lunar surface he sensed both the glory of God and the plight of earthbound man. As he came back to earth, he realized he couldn't content himself with being merely a celebrity. He would have to be a servant, telling his fellow man of a better way to live. Irwin concluded by saying that if we think it a great event to go to the moon, how much greater is the wonder that God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Because man walked on the moon, science and technology have made tremendous advances. But because God walked on the earth... We know both our origin and our destiny. We can know our creator personally. We can live in his light. Through Jesus' sinless life and sacrificial death, we have the joy of sins forgiven and an abundant life. All because God walked on the earth. John 1.1 reads like this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if you'll move down just a few scriptures to verse 14, it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I had said, He comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness we all have received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Lord, thank You for Your Word. God, I just want to thank You for Your presence that's already been here. Lord, it is our desire that everyone who's here experience You. God, Christmas gets lost in packages, it gets lost in lights, it gets lost in the beauty and the joy of of gift giving. But God, today, may we pause for a minute and know that what the real joy of Christmas is, is that you came to earth. God, that you came to show us how to live, you came to show us how to love, you came to show us how to treat people, but then you came to go to a cross, take our sin there, die, but not stay there, rise again 
and take our sin, Lord, and to be our mediator. And in that we have hope. Not just hope. People hope in a lot of things. Our hope is a living hope. And that hope is in you. And it's our desire this morning that every person in this service today experience you, know you, in a personal and a real way. In Jesus' name, amen. All other religions are man's pursuit of God. We got to, all other religions, they have to do something. Maybe go out and try to be good enough. Feed the hungry. Work with the homeless. And the list can go on and on and on. And we do those things as Christians, but not because we're trying to get to God. We serve a God who's come to us. We see in the very beginning when Adam sinned, the Bible said that God went out searching for Adam. said, Adam, where are you? We serve a searching and a seeking God. Every other religion, we have to, they have to please their God. Many times it's said that other religions are defined as D-O. We've got to do something. Whereas Christianity is D-O-N-E. Everything we need has been done. It's been done for us by Christ. At the dedication of the temple, when Solomon asks, will God dwell on the earth? He had no idea that indeed he would through the life of Jesus, the virgin born, son of God. And he starts out his gospel like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That word was, when he starts out, when he says in the beginning was the word, that word was there in the Greek means always has been. Literally means I exist. John goes straight to the deity of Jesus. The writer of the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, they go through Jesus' human genealogy. John bypasses that. Matthew and Luke want to show that he fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies about himself. That he would be of the tribe of Judah. That he would be of the lineage of David. But John goes straight to the deity of Jesus. He doesn't give the human genealogy. And Jesus himself, he confirmed that when the Pharisees who were always trying to trip him up, they were having a conversation and they were saying, we're of our father Abraham. And Jesus looked at them and he said, before Abraham was, the Bible says there, before Abraham existed, if you read that in the Greek, Jesus said, I am. And he said, what are you, you are not even 50 years old. You're telling us you were around before Abraham? That's exactly what he was telling them. Because in the beginning was the Word. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. John takes us back by that statement in the beginning, takes us back to where it all began in Genesis 1.1. It's the exact same language. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Just a few verses down in his gospel, in John 1 and 3, he says this, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was with him at the creation. He created everything, and there was nothing created that wasn't created by him. But not only this, not only in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and this is where we really break from those other People who try to say that we all serve the same God and all the religions are the same. Not only in the beginning was the Word, was the Word with God, but the Word was God. He was God. A lot of times people will come knocking at your door and they'll want to tell you, I don't know, I've, I've received the watchtowers before. I've had conversations with those of the, of the, of the faith of Islam. Thank God we live in a country where people are free to worship as they please. 
But I'm going to stand on what I know to be the truth of God's Word. And I love to have these conversations with folks because I can do it and it not be angry and upset about it. But if you want to know where the breaking point is, what you do is simply ask them, who is Jesus Christ? And many of them, they will tell you, we believe He was the Son of God. They believe, they, they'll tell you things that they think, make you think, oh, we believe the exact same things. But this is where it breaks. Ask this simple question. Was He God? Not a God, God, because the answer will be no. They don't see him as God. They may see him as a God. They may think he rose to the level of a God and many other things that you have to get below the surface, but he was none of those things. He was all God. What we see here is the Trinity. We see the fullness of the Godhead. We see God manifested in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He was as much God as God the Father. He was as much God as God the Holy Spirit. He was all God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. But our God did something unique. Our God did something no other God has ever done. John goes on to say in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. He became one of us. He became one of us. John may have used that word flesh there. Many believe that John used that word flesh there because there was a heresy running around at his time known as docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Many were trying to say Jesus wasn't a real person. He just looked real. But he wasn't real. But John used that word flesh to say he was real. He was all man. He had all the characteristics that I have, all of the characteristics that you have. He was fully man. He was indeed flesh. He had come to take on flesh. But it says then that also he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. The Greek word there for dwelt literally means to pitch a tent. He came to pitch his tent amongst us. The Old Testament would often refer to that as tabernacle. He wants to tabernacle with us. He wants to pitch a tent with us. I don't know how many have ever been tent camping. I have. I grew up camping, raised my children camping. We started out with a tent, and then we moved to a barred pop-up. Then I had a 24-foot travel trailer. And then we had a 28-foot fifth wheel with a slide-out room and beds and TVs. And everybody said, well, that's not camping. It was for me because my back couldn't take the foam crates anymore, couldn't take the heat anymore. But when we did tent camp, I can tell you there was never more, any more intimacy amongst our family than when we tent camped. We'd go into this tent at night and we'd get the kids ready for bed and we would talk and maybe we'd play games and we would laugh and we'd spend time in there and spend time around a campfire. In the morning we would wake up together. It built intimacy. James Dobson had said, I used to follow, I used to follow James Dobson a lot when I was raising my children. I hope he's still an accent. Uh, you, you still have access to him. If you're raising young children today, and I see Sister Christie shaking his head, I would strongly encourage you to Google James Dobson and get some wonderful Christian advice on how to raise young people today in this culture. But I went to there many times. And I remember reading James Dobson saying, one of the best things you can do as a family is camp because of the intimacy that it builds. And that's what God was wanting to do with us. He wants to build intimacy. That's why he pitched his tent. That's why he tabernacled with us, to build intimacy. Has he tabernacled or tent with you today? Has he dwelt with you this week? He wants to. 
He's dwelt with me this week. There's been some times of discussion between me and him. There's been some times he's had to chastise me some this week, saying, Larry, do you fully trust me or don't you? When I begin to question some things, and God, how is this going to work out? I sense his presence. I sense that he is being intimate with me, and he wants to be intimate with you. But he came and he dwelt among us. John's gospel was written both to the Jew and to the Greek. And to those Jews, when he used that Greek word for dwelt, that means to pitch a tent or tabernacle, their minds would have immediately gone to Exodus 33 and 7. They would have known this scripture. They would have known this where it says that Moses took his tent and he pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. From the very beginning, God has wanted to meet with his people. And he told Moses, Moses would erect a a tent, often a tabernacle outside of the camp. And he would go out there and he would meet with God. And the people would go out there and meet with God. It's always been God's desire to meet with his people and to have intimacy with his people. And in verse 11, it says this, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That's the kind of intimacy God wants to have with us. It was imperfect under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. And Jesus came to make it personal. He, made, he came so the dwelling could be personal. He came to indwell our hearts, not just in a tent, a temple, or a tabernacle. He was fully human. He became fully human. Philippians 2 and 5 through 7 reads like this. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. He made himself of no reputation. I've often wondered, as I thought about this, and I've thought about this many times, and I wonder if you've pondered it. At what point did Jesus, the Son of God, sense the depravity and the brokenness of this world when he entered this realm? That is his deity, even as a child in a manger, did he sense the brokenness? Did he sense the sinfulness? He had left heaven. He had left the wonders and the glory of heaven to come down to this earth to take on flesh, to empty himself and make himself of no reputation, to come down to this earth. At what point did he sense the depravity of man? He experienced all the emotions and the needs that we experience. He wept. He stood at Lazarus' tomb, the Bible tells us, and he wept. He was weary from his journeys. I don't think there's any one place that we see the humanity of Jesus any more than we see at the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus would have been fully aware of what he was facing. He would have been fully aware of the cruelty and the brutality of the Roman government. And what it meant to go to a Roman cross. And that night in the Garden of Gethsemane before he would go there, the Bible says he, he said, Lord, let this cup pass from me. He said that he was so stressed that his tears became, his sweat became his blood. I've had things before that I dreaded. And I know many of you have. There's been things in your life you've faced. There's been, maybe it's been a, an illness. Maybe it's, you know, you've got an upcoming surgery. You know the things that's going to come with that. How you must dread that. Think how he felt 
knowing what he was going to face. Everything within his humanity was crying out, knowing what he was going to face. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that he was obedient, even unto death on a cross. He could have called the whole thing off. He could have called all the angels of heaven and said, I can't do this. But he didn't. He was obedient, even to death on a cross. Even though everything in his humanity was crying out, because he knew he would face at the hands of the Roman government. He was fully human. He was also fully God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Why does it matter that he was still fully God? Why did he still have to be fully God? Because church, the only person who was a candidate to take the wrath of God and bear my sin on a cross and your sin on a cross was God himself. And that was the only thing that could satisfy the penalty of sin. Man couldn't do it. Flesh couldn't do it. Bulls couldn't do it. Rams couldn't do it. Only God himself could go to a cross and take the wrath of God that gives us an eternal hope. Only God himself could do that. And in his humanity, it says in Hebrews 4 and 15 that he was, he was tempted in every way. Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Think of every way that you've been tempted. Think of every way that Satan has come to you and tried to tempt you and draw you and entice you. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way. He was tempted in every way. He says we have a high priest. This is... This is out of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is often known as the most Old Testament book of the New Testament. The high priest was a very important person in the Old Testament. Now we have a new high priest. And this high priest was tempted in every way. But yet he was without sin. And in studying this, the question often comes up, could he have sinned? Could Jesus have committed sin? Could he have submitted to the temptations? I read a study just a couple days ago. And it said that the vast majority, particularly of our younger generation, but even our older generation, up to as high as 37%, believe that Jesus sinned. That's incredible. Folks, if Jesus sinned, then we are hopeless. If Jesus sinned, the penalty he paid on the cross does not work for us. He was sinless. Could he have, could he have sinned? And the answer is no. Why? He didn't have something that you and I have. He didn't have a sin nature. He didn't have it. We got it. When Adam fell, that sin nature was imputed into you, and it was imputed into me. And we have it. And sometimes, a lot of times, it rears its ugly head. James says that we're tempted, that the way we're tempted is when we're drawn away by our own desires. That's how we're tempted. The temptations was presented to Jesus. Every temptation you can think of, Satan tried to tempt him. Satan tried to tempt him when he was hungry. Satan took him up and said, look, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all the money. You'll be popular, all these things. Jesus didn't do that. He fought Satan with the word of God. What was different about him? He had no desire for it. He had no desire for sin. One day we'll have no desire for sin. One day we'll be out of sin's presence. But today it's there. Today it's there.
And he was full of grace and truth. You know, our culture today likes the grace message. I like the grace message. I thank God for the grace message. Without God's grace, I'm still lost in my sin. Without God's grace, you're still lost in your sin. The unmerited favor of God. And I thank God for it. But he wasn't just full of grace. He was also full of truth. He was full of truth. And our culture today likes the grace message, but we don't too much like the truth message. You can't separate the two. You cannot separate the living word from the written word. People like the Jesus. They like the Jesus who loved everyone, who healed, who, who, who was compassionate. I like that Jesus too. But he was also the Jesus that was full of truth. He was also the Jesus who stood down those Pharisees and Sadducees who tried to place unrealistic expectations on people. He was also the Jesus who looked at the woman caught in the act of adultery and forgave her of her sin but said, go and sin no more. Full of grace and truth. I've heard it said like this. All grace and no truth makes you a spiritual coward. All truth and no grace makes you a spiritual bully. And I know people on both sides of that. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And he revealed to us the glory of God. The glory of God. You know, that is a, uh, that's a broad term, the glory of God. What, what does that mean, the glory of God? Several months ago, I preached a message on the glory of God. And I used a definition that Tony Evans had given about the glory of God, that it was God on display. We showed the glory of God in creation. It's in his creation. We showed the glory of God in his son. And the glory of God in us. But I found a definition on the gospel coalition that I, I really liked and I wanted to share with you about what is the glory of God. The glory of God is interwoven throughout the biblical story and forms the origin, content, and goal of the entire God's cosmic narrative. God's glory is the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of his many perfections. God communicates his glory through his creation. His image bearers, that's us, his providence, and his redemptive acts. God's people respond by glorifying him. God receives glory, and through uniting his people to Christ, shares his glory with them. And all of this contributes to his glory as God in his manifold perfections is exhibited, known, rejoiced in, and prized. And it finishes with this, the glorious father sends the glorious son who voluntarily humbles himself and glorifies the Father through his incarnation, obedient life, and substitutionary death. In response, the Father glorifies the Son, resurrecting him from the dead and exalting him to the highest place. The Father sends the glorious Spirit who glorifies the Son, which all contributes to the glory of the Father. Jesus came to do that. He came to show us all those things. The Angels, I'm sorry, the shepherds experienced that glory at the birth of Jesus. In Luke 2, 8 through 9, it says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Why would the glory of God be there? In the definition given by the Gospel Coalition, the glory of God shows up in his redemptive acts. This is the greatest redemptive act in history. This is the greatest redemptive act in history. That God has sent his son. The long-awaited Messiah has come. And the shepherds see that. And they see the glory of God 
shine around it. Prior to Christ, God's glory was in the tabernacle. Exodus 40 and 34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Prior to Christ, as we saw, Moses would carry that tabernacle. He gave his people specific instructions on this tent, how to carry it, how to set it up. And once they would set it up, the Bible says that his glory would fill that. It was known as the Shekinah glory would come down and fill that temple. And that's where they would meet with God. And then it was in the temple. It was in the temple, 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So the priests could not continue in ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house. The temple, it had the courtyard, it had the holy place, it had the holy of holies where the high priest would go once a year to make a sacrifice for our sins and God's presence would be there. By now with Christ, it's in us. John 17 and 22. Jesus talking to his disciples, he said, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. You want to capture the spirit of Christmas? Let us be the glory of the God. Let us see needs and meet needs. Let us be kind in an unkind world. Let us not get sucked into all the things and all the noise that's going on out there. Let us be the representatives in the hands and feet of Jesus that he's called us to be. That is the call of Christmas on those of us who have experienced the real miracle of Christmas. And lastly, we have all received his fullness and grace upon grace. What we see here at the birth of Jesus is the old covenant fading away to the new The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 16 through 18. He's almost quoting verbatim the prophet Jeremiah. And he said this, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, said the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering sin. They were under the law. They were under the old covenant prior to the coming of Christ. He said, I'm going to take, Jeremiah said, the day's coming and it has now come that the law is coming off the tablets and it's coming into our hearts and it's coming into our minds. Because the law could only reveal our sin. Keeping of rules can never save us. We can keep all the rules and we can't keep the rules and God showed us we couldn't keep the rules and we still are good at making rules and putting rules out for people, but rules don't save us. We keep rules because we've had an experience with the Lord. We keep rules because we have accepted the salvation. We keep rules, we keep His Word because we know what our sin cost. Hebrews 10 and 1 says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. The old covenant, year after year, that high priest would have to go into that holy of holies and make a sacrifice. Year after year after year. That covenant's faded away. It faded away in the birth of Christ. Only Jesus 
Only the Son of God, only the Word made flesh could take our sin. Hebrews 10 and 12 said, But this man, referring to Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And that's where he sits today, at the right hand of God. Sitting down, indicating it is finished. When he hung on the cross, that's what he said, it is finished. He came to this earth. He took on flesh. He dwelt with us. He wants intimacy with us. He showed us the way. But what he really came to do was to hang on a cross and to take my sin, to take the wrath of God that should be on me and should be on you, take it to a grave and rise again. And on that cross, he said, it is finished. Everything we need for our salvation is done. We don't have to do a thing. Why do we? Because we've experienced his grace. We've experienced his love. And when that permeates your heart, what outflows from that is a desire to love people, to make a difference in this world, and proclaim the coming kingdom of God. Matt, I'm going to get you and the team would come forward. So Matt had said in his opening that he's coming again. He's just as surely as all the prophets prophesied and all of them came through true that, he's, that he was coming, that the Messiah was coming. We have prophecies that he's coming again. And in the opening, I said that the dedication of the temple, Solomon asked, will God dwell on the earth? Will God dwell on the earth? And he did. He come, he took on flesh, he dwelt among us, he walked this earth, he was on this earth for 33 years. But in our Christian faith and in the word, we live in this realm of now and not yet. Now and not yet. He dwells with me now, he dwells with you now. You've experienced him. There's an intimacy between you and the God of heaven through Christ that you've experienced in your heart. And I hope you have. And if you hadn't, you can. It comes to repenting of your sin and asking God to be the Lord of your life and setting on a journey to let Him change you. And so we experience that now. But we're still in somewhat of the not yet. We're still a little bit of the not yet because the day is coming when we'll experience it fully. We'll experience the way that God intended it all along. And this same writer of this gospel also wrote the book of Revelation. And this is what he said in Revelation 21 and 3. He said, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. That's the same word he used in John 14. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. The day is coming when He's going to dwell with us. The day is coming when that tabernacle, the pitching of that tent is going to come down on this earth and we will be His people and He will be our God and we'll live how He intended us to live. Separated from the sin, no longer with the sin nature. Are you prepared for that this morning? That's what we want here is that you can say, I am prepared to see God. If, you ever, if everyone would, if you just bow your head and just close your eyes for a moment.
Lord, we thank you that you became flesh. We came, thank you, Lord, that you took on flesh and that you pitched your tent with us. You've made your home here with us. Your home is now in our hearts. We sense you. We know you're with us. Lord, when we, when we don't do well, you're there to convict us, draw us back into you. Lord, when we rejoice, we rejoice before you. Lord, we're guided by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you. God, you came and you took on flesh. Lord, in this Christmas season, Lord, and as those sit under the sound of this vo uh, my voice and they've sat under the worship, God, we ask if there's one here that you're dwelling in their heart now. You're speaking into their heart now that today is the day of salvation for them. That they won't walk out of this place until they've walked into that tent and experienced the intimacy with you. And so, Lord, we honor you and we praise you today. And we thank you for this Christmas season. And we give you glory and we give you praise.